Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parkin. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California, and this is our last show of the year that was 2020. And we're going to be having a uh, a little bit of a year in review. And as always, uh, talking about these things, I'm joined by... Uh, Bob Izanko in Niles, Ohio. Uh, Happy end to 2020. It's uh, it's been a hell of a year. So this is our 59th 59th show, which is amazing. I can't imagine that we would... I, I thought we might do 20. So... Uh, a lot to talk about. Obviously, we're not just going to do a recap of the year. You all know what happened already. We're going to, I think, give you some thoughts on what what we thought really was important that went down and maybe some lessons, I guess, is the word to use about what we can do for it. And as always, we start by thanking y'all for, I, I lapsed into text in there, y'all, uh, for listening and watching and supporting and liking and all that. Uh, keep doing that. We've uh, just noticed the other night, Scott's way on top of this in terms of like following up on things. The other night I looked at the uh, Apple podcast page and we've got some really awesome reviews. So thank you for that. And we would encourage you to rate and review uh, and share. That's the biggest thing. Share these because as we always say, I think we do stuff that you're, you know, there are a million, literally a million podcasts out there. So it's kind of hard to find a niche and be totally unique. But I do think uh, we're doing stuff that is not by any means typical, especially in left media, the radical history shows, the JFK show we just did. I was like the last one, right? Yeah. has gotten some really good. I've gotten more feedback, I think, on that than maybe any. I got all kind of like emails and texts and stuff like that. Some positive, some not so much, which is great. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate that when you when you take the time to share it and comment on it and uh, give us ideas and, and all that kind of stuff, because... I think it's a level of radical history. I know you won't find anywhere else. I'm sure of that. And then I also think, you know, we talk to people who aren't going to get a venue on all those kind of hip lefty podcasts who are going to have on, you know, Ivy League professors and, you know, people who are involved in media, you know, contests over whether AOC should force a vote and all that kind of stuff. We don't do that. And those guys don't know who we are. So we, we need you to spread the word. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a really important uh, contrast to flag about how our show is that we're we're not actually trying to be just this sort of like faux socialist pundit class, uh, which is where at least I'm beginning to land and how I see those kind of bigger name shows that you see on YouTube and in the podcast universe. We're more in depth. We do deep dives. Actually, a lot of feedback I've gotten from my friends is that they love our show because we so deep dive into issues, into radical history, and then also bring on, you know, an amazing array of activists and journalists and filmmakers. And it's, I feel like the 59 episodes that we've done has been like an amazing contribution to like movement work. And because it's the end of the year, although we do this in every episode, we want to do a particular emphasis on folks supporting us. We have we, uh, we do this on a scrappy budget. We've gotten some very generous donations. We have a, a small, generous core of friends who support us on Patreon. And then we've gotten a couple of grants uh, from a not-to-be-named activist group who supports our work. And, so, and that basically funds the little advertising that we have done, as well as uh, our amazing editor uh, named Isaac, uh, who does really great work and has actually in more than one episode kind of pulled out some of our audio mishaps and cleaned it up really well, just to give him some big props in the end of the year episode. Uh, and so, you know, this all just supports helping us make some really quality podcasts. Um, so to donate, you know, you can go to greenandredpodcast.org to the support link and just don't make a one-time donation. It's the end of the year. Uh, if you want a tax exempt donation, we can actually arrange for that too. You just need to email us at greenredpodcast at gmail.com and we can arrange for that. And if you want to be an ongoing supporter of Green and Red Podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, 
patreon.com backslash green red podcast and join that small but mighty core of people who uh, uh, give us a monthly donation. And so just really want to like do a shout out to the people who have supported us so far and to our patrons, um, our executive producer, for example, Hep Ingham, who you may have seen on our YouTube channel recently, uh, is, a, is a very generous donor. Um, and so uh, I don't want to shift too much into like a, an NPR or PBS or, or Pacifica style fund drive, but just really want to kind of put it out there. It's really great when y'all support us. Um, maybe, maybe we should get some tote bags made. Yeah, we can get some tote bags made, bag, or maybe some, bag. or maybe some coffee cups, right? I um, looked into that. They're they're not cheap per unit. Yeah, no. yeah. If you want to make a donation and help us get buy some green and red buy podcasts, some green and red podcast coffee mugs. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The uh, other thing that we want to share before we get into the episode is that we have uh, we're taking a stab at a new media venue forum. Uh, it's Medium. We've created a Medium publication that we will begin uh, publishing articles, blogs. We'll be posting our regular episodes on it. We actually already have one up on it, but it's Green and Red Media on Medium if you want to follow our publication. And so really encourage people to do that. And you'll, <clears throat> if you don't feel like you've gotten enough of Scott and Bob's thoughts on things, then you know, definitely check out our Medium page. Yeah. Um, and we're hoping to, uh, we'll be hopefully collaborating with some other folks in 2021 on some of our media media efforts a global well. a global media empire yeah yeah and I, if any of you uh can't get enough of me which I, no one's ever said uh i do have a uh just ask my exes right uh i have a blog it's called afflict the comfortable which is one word afflict the comfortable.org and uh i've been doing that for four or five years and there's a bunch of stuff on there which i actually like you know we brag well, i brag scott's very humble and modest but you know, I think we've been on top of a lot of stuff. Like, you know, back when COVID started, you know, I wrote a piece like in March saying, you know, China is a scapegoat. This is a failure in capitalism. And like, boom, like two weeks later, three weeks later, that became a story all about China. You know, so we've been on top of stuff. We we were talking about how the the military hated Trump, right? And this was before the the rebellions began and you know uh, millie had to publicly apologize we were on top of that we've been on top of how there was never going to be a coup that was like the hysterics of people like you know paul street at counterpunch who were unhinged that the ruling class was never going to allow this country to become that destabilized right and i mean trump's still trying and he's a horribly dangerous horrific disgusting despicable detestable human but he's going to be he's not going to be president after january 20th and so, I mean, we're really, you know, we're not doing the popular lefty outrage stuff that gets everybody worked up and gets everybody out. We don't talk about AOC. We don't talk about Bernie Sanders other than, you know, once in a while to get some snark in. And so um, I feel like we're Martin and Lewis at the MDA telethon right now. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, you're going to get stuff here. It's not, you know, it's not light. I mean, we talk about a lot of serious stuff and we're not telling you what you want to hear, I think, which to me has been like why you should be on the left to, to hear things that you don't want to hear. So anyway, that's me as my professor role, I think. So, yes. And, and so kind of getting into the year, you know, as we were preparing for this episode, you know, we, we talked about a couple of different themes. We talked about things that, that would probably be in the minus column. And we talked about things in the pro column. Uh, and so I, I think a, a important role that we play for our, uh, small but growing audience is that there's a critique of of systems of uh, capitalism in particular, but you know also other things that sort of tie into that tie into that. And what I don't feel like we get from like other left media sources, at, at least lately, it has been this like a kind of more biting critique of the system. Uh, and so we're wanting to like talk actually a lot more about about capitalism and the impacts of capitalism on like the world, like on natural systems, on communities, on you know working people, et cetera. Uh, and so we've kind of moved. Um, we, we, this has actually led the U.S. to be this sort of like disaster failed state. Um, and so maybe we can like kind of kick off with that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think to people like us, and there are many of people like us, that's, I think, the most obvious uh, development of, of 2020. It's the the 
you can't hide it anymore. I mean, it's this, this, there's clearly an utter systemic disaster on many fronts, obviously medical health care, environmental health. I mean, they're the same thing, right? The environment, the healthcare system, the medical system all work together. You had this pathogen, which, you know, I, we still see people on the left even talking about, oh, it was created as a, in a lab in Wuhan or in Bethesda, it's a form of Ken bio warfare. To me, the far more radical way of looking at it is that, you know, People have destroyed the environment. These mega corporations have destroyed the environment so badly and, and just, you know, eliminated that massive barrier between humans and nature so that now there's this daily interaction with these pathogens. And, you know, today the head of the WHO said that um, this isn't the worst, that to expect, you know, far more deadly forms of, of you know, COVID type things to come out. So I think that's the, the most obvious. The economy you know, which many of us, again, have been saying for a long time. I, the thing that struck me about the economy is it, it, there was no, this wasn't a war. This wasn't a hurricane. It wasn't a cyclone. There was no like physical, natural destruction, right? The factories were still there. Everything was still there. And it goes back to, we talked about David Graeber, who, you know, passed unfortunately this year. And, you know, I actually had some issues with Graeber, but I, the, the thing he did the best, what I liked was the bullshit jobs book. Because this is what Americans are doing. Like, you know, there were a couple clogs, but for the most part, in the worst days of the pandemic, people ate, you know, people, you know, had access to the stuff they actually needed to live, but they couldn't buy the garbage from Target and from Walmart and from Amazon. And that's the economy now. It's based on bullshit jobs making unnecessary stuff. And, you know, the, the U.S. economy cratered worse than it had since 1929 without any destruction or without any, you know, people were still growing stuff in the farms. It wasn't like there was a dust bowl. You know, the factories were still going. People were being forced into them in these toxic conditions. So, you know, that was clear. And then, um, you know, in the political system, obviously, it was like Trump. And this is something I think we've done a lot, which is really important on Green and Red, is point out that, yeah, Trump is, he's a different kind of cat. Right. But we did shows we've talked about Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan and Clinton and Obama. Trump is is far more you know vulgar and overt, but he's clearly uh, the, the I would say natural consequence of this system that's that's gone on for quite some time. And, and I think those are really I mean, those are pretty obvious, but um, you can't say them enough. It's 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 you know, not to be like a Cassandra, but that's, it's bad, you know, it's bad. Yeah. And I think, I think the other, the other sort of important uh, effect of, of Trump has been, you know, the, the sort of like left commentary that has happened that, oh my God, Trump's a fascist. There's going to be a coup. Like we're, we've kind of feel like we've played a little bit of a, a devil, devil's advocate, a voice of reason, a voice of calm there. But the, the actual kind of real effect connected to like any sort of like fascism is actually the, the how Trump has led to this sort of like, uh, I, I think they were always there, but this sort of like, you know, this far right element in American society feeling like that, that they were empowered to like kind of go into the street and, and be much more public because they felt and, and I feel like they also drink a lot of their own conspiratorial Kool-Aid that like Trump is their savior. It's the sort of thing that you heard about in the QAnon conspiracies, but like they, they it's allowed them to sort of step into the light. And I, and I actually feel like that is the kind of like one of the more dangerous effects. And like, Absolutely. you know, lots of people this summer hit the streets, like millions of people. I, I think at one point there was an estimation of 25 to 27 million people who were hit in the streets after the brutal police murder of, of George Floyd, and also in response to the brutal, brutal police murder of, of Breonna Taylor and others. Um, and the far right actually also stepped into the street, smaller numbers, more armed, shot people, right? Like there were people on what I see as our side who were like murdered by these people. Oh, Kenosha, that happened in Lexington, you know, there was a lot of like violence between the far right and left in, in Portland. We had like left-wing organizers from, street organizers from Portland on with us for one show back in August. And so I think the the sort of like important thing is that like these people are now out in the, out in public and they may or may not go away. Uh, but, you know, I, I do feel like they're going to be around for at least a little while. And like Trump has been like really egging them on. 
you know, January 6th is actually supposed to be in about a week. It's supposed to be actually a big protest day. Trump is talking about having a rally on January 20th, Inauguration Day, the sort of like sort of counter the, the Biden inauguration. And so like that this grouping may or may not fade back into the shadows, may crawl back under their rocks, but they're going to be around for at least a little bit. And, and they're very dangerous. Lots of my street organizer friends in Portland and Washington, D.C. and places like that are very concerned, very alarmed by by this. Like Proud Boys have been doing rallies pretty regularly in in D.C. They've also been doing them here in Sacramento near me. So, Yeah, they're not going away. Uh, what I think is important, and we can talk about that, I think I think that's kind of one of the key themes we talk about toward the end of this, is that um, they're vastly outnumbered. And the media loves the spectacle, like those horrific scenes in Michigan. To me, that's like the photo of the year is that guy, you know, screaming like that far away from a, a cop's face, you know, at, at an anti-mask rally, you know, which is just like it's an obvious juxtaposition to the way police kill black men every day. Right. And this guy is with an AK-47. But I think it's important to kind of, and the media loves the spectacle and the left loves the spectacle too. But the reality is those guys are vastly outnumbered and we have to keep that in mind. And, you know, one of the good things that came out of this year, I think is that, you know, who would have imagined that you would have like the director of FBI and people in Homeland Security and Joe Biden during a presidential debate saying that, you know, Antifa is not an organized terror group. It's just, it's an idea, right? And I mean, in, in, in some ways, Trump kind of legitimated, you know, anti-fascist actions which is, you know, not, not, not necessarily bad. Another thing, and, and this is something that's kind of more, I think, esoteric, but you and I talk about a lot. One thing that really struck me this year is, is like we've, all, we've, we've talked about the ruling class. We did a great show called Ruling Class 101, which I, if you haven't watched it or listened to it, you should and tell everybody about it. But, you know, you always kind of knew who was in charge of America, right? You know, guys on Wall Street and the head of GM or the head of uh, Ford and General Electric and, you know, there was always this kind of ruling class, which was pretty discernible in the, you know, more recently, yeah, they, you know, Steve Jobs types or Gates or- you and, know, and the fossil fuel, the oil The company. fossil fuel, right, Exxon, right, these heavy industries, coal. But now you got like the My Pillow guy, you know? And and uh, these people from uh, Payday Lenders, I just read a story about this this district in Tennessee, the heavily Republican district. And like the big, the big rainmaker there is a guy who owns a bunch of payday lender shops, like second biggest in the country, I think, like after Title Max or something like that, you know. And you know these guys who run casinos, and it, it's 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 harder to figure out. Like, and and I think Trump has really accelerated that because he has the worst relations with Wall Street of any president I've ever, you know. And I, I follow this stuff, you know. I find it very fascinating. Um, and Trump has gone a long way considering that, you know, Wall Street hates him, although he made them a lot of money. So there was a, a nice truce there for several years. They're probably not too unhappy with the corporate tax cut. No, no, exactly. And he bought them off for a while and they got everything they could off of him. Right. But I mean, Trump has gone to war publicly with uh, the Fed, you know, and you know, Supreme Court, too, now. So he, it's, start, it's, he snarks at Jamie Dimon on Twitter. Yeah, it's 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 weird. And I'm not sure what to make of that, you know, when you have this, this kind of new economy where, you know, the MyPillow guy is, is like, you know, being called, you know, like uh, during World War II, they had the dollar a year men, right, for war production. And now you have the MyPillow guy, you know, with QAnon conspiracies. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a product of 2020 that, that is also important. We've seen this new kind of new economy, you know, really the, the Uber economy, the gig economy, like the California votes, you know, which you know, the most liberal state, right, uh, voted against labor rights for for gig workers. I mean, it's a, it, I, I'll say this too, which is like just now being a little bit more of a, a, a news item is that you know congressional races in California in 2018, the Democrats took seven yeah. sort of swing districts, and in 2020, the Republicans took back four of the seven, and basically like red baited their opponents with like defund the police and, and, and socialism and, and uh, all, all that sort of stuff. And so like, I, I'll also say that like, you know, California politics are something we should do a show on in 2021. Uh, but like, I, I feel like it's not as liberal as uh, people would have you believe. You know, there's the, the one thing that, that struck me in 2016 and, and less on now, you know, 2016, the liberals immediately, you know, went off on Trump's a racist. Everybody voted for him as a racist. And they would have, you know, these memes of 
people at Walmart and they're a bunch of, you know, trailer trash and this and that. And that always pissed me off because 2020 is a little different now that you're like, you have guys in the streets with swastikas and QAnon, then it's kind of hard to, to find grace in, in people who continue to support Trump after, you know, COVID and all this other stuff. But there was always, and I still believe this is to be true. There was always a, a genuine and I think legitimate disdain for experts and elitists and, you know, not long ago, about a month ago, who's the the crazy, who's the crazy Republican governor? There you go. That, that <laughs> narrows it down. In um, in one of the Dakotas, uh, Christy Nome, I forget, is that North or South? South. But you know, she was going on about masks, and we're not going to let the experts and we're not going to the elites tell us what to do. And that that's what I think is important. And that's why Pelosi, I think, is so malignant. I mean, she is the the embodiment of that. You know. Um, that kind of, you know, let them eat ice cream kind of, kind of, uh, and, and we did a great show with Shahid Buttar who ran against her on that. And, and I mean, it's easy, like a lot of lefty media picks on Pelosi and, and the Democrats as they should. Now, the other part of that is, you know, like these guys aren't going to change. They're not into India, like people on the left, they don't care. Sanders was never going to be the nominee, the squad, even if it's bigger now, and you can include Ed Markey is like what? seven or eight people out of 535. So um, the idea that somehow you should be, I think is a disaster to spend your time dealing with elected officials and electoral politics. And, you know, we have five guys from DSA in New York state legislature now. Yeah, that's nice. You know, uh, there were more communists than the Guatemalan Senate in 1954, you know? So, um, but, but uh, yeah, I, I think we see this, this anti-elitism is something to really uh, account for. I mean, there's no doubt Trump is a, is an overt racist and played to that. And I'm afraid that there really are a lot of people who are just like cool with police killing black people in the streets, you know. But there is this kind of elitism and expertise. And, and if you look at the, the, the election data, you know, it kind of showed, right? This, you know, kind of college-educated people voted for... Democrats and there was this real disdain. You know, you're supposed to be the party of the working class, and you're really kind of contemptuous of them. I I feel like that's the that's liberalism, right? Well, yeah, exactly. And I think, and again, I mean, my point on all this is like I said, none of this is new, but it's just it's unavoidable now. It's just like it struck you. It's this brilliant, bright sun, and you can no longer deny it. And um, you know, and, and, and I don't know, you're done, but I was going to move to a second point, which I think is, is, is equally important. And again, it's, it's nothing I think we don't know, but it's, again, it's, it's more clear than ever. And that's like what we've seen is the profound, like incredibly profound um, marginal precarity of, of life. People right now, um, I mean, you know, if you follow this, if you've been on the left, you've read stories about poverty, this and that. And, and I think you and I, follow this as much as anybody and i can't speak for you but i didn't know it was that bad you know like it's it's so much more precarious and people are so much more vulnerable uh and and i think you know covid really exposed that they're just um you know and we're looking at now you know like in what two three days how many evictions how many people are millions i mean 10 million or something right and how many people have lost you know what you know in many cases the bad health care policies they had how many people have lost all of that you know uh again tens of millions 30 30 or 40 million people have been unemployed at some point this year and we also see this war on the poor you know homeless people are being rousted you know uh you, you know there's a million reasons they hate cops but uh in addition to just the violence they commit but you know when police evict you know 65 year old people from a house where they've lived for 30 years where people just go into a homeless encampment and 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 throw everything away in Houston, they did that. You know, they just brought up a dump truck, and and the cops, the Houston cops, just threw everything away. You know, these homeless people had. I mean, that's that's a that's a, that's Nero in the Roman Empire. That's Caligula shit. There, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I I feel like we've been seeing this sort of erosion of like the the safety net. Right. So it's like the popular thing is that we've had like the introduction of austerity politics over the last 40 years. And it's also brought back, it's revitalized the Gilded Age. And so like we've had this like increasing, you know, economic divide in the US. And and then and then, you know, we've had the last four years of a complete 
people call him an authoritarian, but he's actually, you know, to me, his politics are way more about being libertarian and which is, was in some ways his, his downfall, um, this vulgar libertarian capitalism. And then like, we had this pandemic hit, which like pushed all of those people who were already being divided over at the edge, like healthcare, okay. being able to cope with the virus, losing their like minimum wage job or their job right above minimum wage. And then also like having to like have the, a bunch of millionaires to be really fucking honest, argue about it in Congress to the point where people are like unemployment benefits are getting cut off. Rents are getting paid. Evictions are happening. I mean, it's like we're in this gilded age now and it's like horrible and it's going to, it's going to just get worse. Like I don't think any centrist Democrat who are also beholden to the same corporate sponsors are going to do anything different. (laughs) No. And and hold a little bit of a line maybe, but who knows? Doubtful. I mean, I've never, I didn't, I mean, you know, I, you know, we've, we had shows about this. Like I voted for the first time in forever and I encourage people to vote for Biden. I, I, it wasn't like, he's going to move to the left. Right? I, to me, it was just like, you know what, he's going to believe COVID's a real thing and not call it a hoax. What, what strikes me, and I keep going back to this is the emergence of like GoFundMe, which is now like basically the third biggest insurance company in America. You know, I mean, think about that. Like you're literally, you know, it's the Blanche Dubois, Social policy. I'm relying on the, the the kindness of strangers. Yeah. What what really struck me is the head of security at the White House, a really bad case of COVID. Wow. I wonder how that happened. Right. Uh, and he lost super spreader event going on over there. Yeah. I mean, I think he what was it like? He lost his leg, one of his legs, and then a foot on the other leg or something. And he they set up a GoFundMe page. This guy's the head of security at the White House and doesn't have adequate health care. So just thinking, and you know, so so you have these horrible material conditions of life, and then, and I don't usually do this, you know, but I, I want to read something from from Karl Marx in, in a minute. But what <laughs> what strikes me is just it's not just this material precarity, this horrible vulnerability, but there's this kind of you know kind of mental social cost as well, and people don't enjoy like there's no no like enjoyment of human life, right? There's there's no community. I mean, one thing COVID did, like I've noticed, like, you know, with my nieces and stuff, they used to go play, you know, they were in kids' soccer leagues and they played baseball and stuff. That's, you know, gone this year too. But there's no sense of community and this social isolation. I mean, it's it's not new, COVID-related. It's just kind of been, people work, you know, the other day I was in a grocery store and the woman in front, you know, said Merry Christmas to the, the cashier and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I hope you're doing well. And you know, have a good, and she's like, well, I have to go to another job. And this was like five or six in the evening already. And the woman had to go. She said, I have two jobs. I have to go to my next job next. And there's no time. Like, how do you, how do you have a family life? How do you have a, a, a communal life? You can't practice good health habits. You know, you can't yeah. go, you, you can't go buy food at Whole Foods. You can't buy organic kombucha. You can't afford it. You can't be, you know, drinking, kombucha. like I struck me the other day, like when this began last summer, I was reading articles. So I bought a bunch of like vitamins, you know, vitamin zinc and all. I, poor people can't do that. Like I bought a year's supply, you know, poor people can't even buy like, you know, vitamin D apparently is very good for uh, COVID or, you know, COVID prevention. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm in the store and people are looking there saying, well, I can't afford this, you know? I mean, there's this level where you don't even like your health, your family, um, it's soul crushing. You know, your your whole life is work related now. And this brings me there, uh, uh, going back to, to Uncle Whiskers, as I call him, Karl Marx. And I usually don't do this. I, I, I you know, I, I try not to be, you know, kind of a show off here. I know, right? I'm so modest. But, <laughs> um, but I, I've, I've often, you know, kind of, this is one of my favorite passages. It's from the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts, which he wrote in, in 1844, so this is prior to the manifesto. And he's actually talking about the way we live our lives. And he's talking about, Marx calls them political economists. And by that, he means like the capitalists and, um, you know, businessmen, you know, f- things like that. Um, and and there's, it's it's a bit long and I'll try to, to make it a, a little more lively. Maybe I'll, you know, sing and dance in between or something, but. Dramatic, uh, Marx pauses, says, dramatic pauses. Dramatic pauses. I'll, I'll do it like uh, Alec Guinness or somebody like that, you know. Um, who's a great Shakespearean actor? Uh, what's that guy named? Kenneth Branner, right? Yeah, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Um, he says, Mark says, by reducing the worker's need to the barest and most miserable level of physical subsistence, and by reducing his activity to the most abstract mechanical movement, 
Thus, he says, the capitalist, man has no other need either of activity or of enjoyment. Two, by counting the most meager form of life existence as the standard, indeed as the general standard, he turns the worker into an insensible being lacking all needs, just as he changes his activity into a pure abstraction from all activity. To him, therefore, every luxury of the worker seems to be reprehensible, and everything that goes beyond the most abstract need, be it in the realm of passive enjoyment or a manifestation of activity, seems to him a luxury. Political economy, this science of wealth, is therefore simultaneously the science of renunciation, of want, of saving, and it actually reaches the point where it spares man the need of either fresh air or physical exercise. This science of marvelous industry is simultaneously the science of asceticism, and its true ideal is the ascetic but extortionate miser and the ascetic but productive slave. Its moral idea is the worker who takes part of his wages to the savings bank. And it is even found ready-made a servile art which embodies this pet idea. It has been presented bathed in sentimentality on the stage. Thus political economy, despite its worldly and voluptuous appearance, is a true moral science. The most moral of all the sciences, self-renunciation, the renunciation of life, and all of its human needs is its principal thesis. The less you eat, drink, and buy books, the less you go to the theater, the dance hall, the public house, the less you think, love, theorize, sing, paint, fence, etc. the more you save, the greater becomes your treasure, which neither moths nor rust will devour your capital. Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash greenredpodcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. Uh, I always was struck the first time I ever read that many, many years ago. And I've read that many times since then. But this making penury a grace is is really profound, right? Um, you know, these attacks on people, you know, if you have food stamps, you're not allowed to buy a, a steak or people get their $600, $1,200 check and, you know, oh, they went out and bought a TV. It really is this kind of estrangement. Uh, at, at another point, Marx talks about the estrangement of man from himself, and I think that part is like, it's, it's a little more, it's very philosophical, right? But it's very profound. Like, you know, you can't enjoy life. I mean, that's why you watch a football game on Sunday, right? Because you can't, you know, you can't, you, you know, like in Italy, working class people go to the opera, right? You know, which struck me. There's like a million little opera houses there. And here, you know, you're, you're made to feel guilty if you are doing something that's enjoyable, and, and, and I think what we're seeing now is really kind of a profound application of that idea where your meager existence and your inability to simply have a community, to have people around you, to enjoy life together uh, has been raised as, as a virtue. And, and I think on the left, you know, I keep going back to, um, you know, kind of thing you know, like Ho and, and Che and, and Fidel would always make a point of that, like that we have to have these communities, we have to enjoy these lives we have with each other. And there's nothing like that. And the American left doesn't do that either. The American left has podcasts and like us, right? But uh, but the American left, you know, um, is kind of a social media creation. I mean, it's funny. Like, think about how many friends on Facebook do you actually know? Like 2%, 5%, you know? Yeah. Moving into like what we want to talk about next is that the, you know, there's like a, a couple of different aspects of the American left that we feel like have been missing the the real lesson of the Trump moment. And, you know, these aspects, these sectors of the American left are definitely those that are devoid of community. I, I do feel like that there are like left communities, at least that I've been a part of, but they're not the ones that I find on social media. And they're not the ones that I, 
you know, get from like watching YouTube or anything like that. Uh, and so uh, moving into like this, you know, commentary about the, the professional left, as I like to call them, um, the, the one I'll start with is uh, the one which I actually feel like is one of the most resourced, which is like the sort of nonprofit industrial complex, which is <clears throat> in some ways very strategic and but they're but the politics are like essentially reformist um and there have also been these sort of bigger moments where momentum has been squandered and like we over the last 10 years we've seen the rise of like a kind of le legit left and that's this where i think communities are formed and it's in these moments like occupy wall street and standing rock and the and the uprising around ferguson and Black Lives Matter, and 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 actually, you've seen it a lot of this sort of what I, I like to call it the street left around the Trump era, and and particularly this year since the murder of George Floyd, but also like the sort of rise of like mutual aid networks and and uh, wildcat strikes and things like that. And but the professional left sort of like actually plays this role of trying to stabilize that or stymie that or put a um, put a lid on that, I guess you could say. And so like they go along with what the, those in power, whether it's centrist Democrats or even Republicans do, uh, a really important thing that happened after the election is there actually had been a lot of momentum building around a potential, like here on Green and Red, we have taken a pretty strong position that like Trump was not anywhere near to like being able to successfully pull off a coup or attempt a coup that all the different elements in society in the, in the ruling class weren't gonna let that happen. But like, there was also like a street organizing effort that happened for a year that was also working to kind of head that off. And that, you know, it's one thing when all these, like when the ruling class does things, and it's one thing when these sort of like institutions of the left unions, nonprofits, you know, are opposed to that. But it's a whole other thing when there would have been a thunder on the street around that, which is what would have happened if Trump had actually been able to somehow overturn the election. Maybe they had slipped it in past the Supreme Court. There would have been a thunder on the left around that. And there was a lot of momentum building up after election day. Uh, and there was one particular effort called Protect the Results, which was like a, a coalition of hundreds of groups. And they had planned like days of action. It wasn't even like, it wasn't even direct action. And it wasn't even like hardcore protests or anything like that. It was going to be, a, you know, it was a map with like a couple hundred rallies on it. And the Biden people working through you know, their allies within this sort of professional left within these institutions basically put a stop to that. Like the day after the election, there was going to be like a huge wave of rallies the, to protect the results. And the centrists, Democrats, whether in the Biden campaign or within the nonprofit industrial complex, did everything they could to stop that. And so while the rallies still happened and there were still lots of protests that went on for weeks after the election, the, the sort of big momentum, the big organized unified effort was like kind of a halt was put to it. And so I actually feel like the professional left, because it's actually, in my opinion, too beholden to the, to the centrist Democrats. And they're the kind of people who want jobs in the White House. And they're the kind of people who want jobs within, uh, you know, on congressional staffs and Senate staffs and things like that. Or they want nice consulting gigs with somebody or lobbying gigs basically like the, the real lesson of the Trump moment. Uh, and that's going to be a little bit of the theme of what we're going to talk about next. Uh, the real lesson of the Trump moment is that this street power works, this thunder on the left works, this thunder in the streets, street organizing works. Like when you look at the protests around after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, when you, you know, look at the sort of mutual aid and labor, the wave of labor strikes after the pandemic, that that is what works. That's just the lesson of this year, let alone the last 10 years. And the, and the professional left does everything it can to sort of stymie that. It's not the other two sectors we're going to talk about. I, I, I wouldn't say that they necessarily do that. But this sort of nonprofit industrial complex is the sort of like, it's the it's the stabilizing mechanism for people in the street. Labor labor leadership does the yeah. same thing. Labor leadership has. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, in 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 our formula, you know, which we've been saying for a long time, there's not going to be a coup. I think even more than the ruling class, you know, our assumption was that there would be such an immense explosion in the streets. You know, that was always kind of the the biggest part of the framework, right? And um, and, and the most important. 
The most, no, exactly. That was it, like more than Wall Street, which I think is critical and, and at the end really was determinative. But I assume, like I said, you know, remember I said many times, like, man, that's going to make July, June and July look small yeah. by comparison. And and um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I think, you know, on November 4th, it was clear Biden was going to win and it, and it wasn't going to be like a 2000 Florida cliffhanger thing. But, uh, you know, that, and that was like, I mean, I wrote an article like, why aren't people in the streets? So, I mean, it wasn't like I said, oh, there's not going to be a coup, nothing to worry about. I didn't believe that at all. Yeah. I mean, Trump is Trump is dangerous. There's still a great deal to worry about. But uh, I, yeah, I, I think that, that 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 professional left, the union leadership, you know, when you have people like Jimmy Hoffa, uh, Hoffa Jr. and, and uh, Trumpka and Weingarten, uh, you know, the, the labor movement is, you know, they, they sent made their workers go back into meat processing plants where, you know, COVID was running rampant. So, yeah, you can't rely on um, on, on on these kind of liberal leaders. Now, this is your world. And, um, you know, you understand this way better than I do. The one thing I will say, and I think we're going to talk about this, too, is one thing that stood out is the, the moral courage exhibited that was not necessarily well organized prior to these these actions was was inspiring. I mean, in my entire life, I don't think I've ever seen like it. Yeah. And it more than once watching video, I or brought tears to my eyes, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the the earlier you talked about how this period, this new gilded age, the pandemic the Trump moment was really bad for working people. I actually feel like the moral, the moral courage of people in this, in this moment also was like really important. And the sort of like pushback that they're continued to do against the police state and against wealthy corporations and against these politicians, I think is like, what's really gonna, is gonna really sort of make or break whatever happens next. It's the, you know, and we didn't even, we haven't even really talked about the climate crisis and uh, maybe we'll get that to that in a moment, but like, you know, we have these sort of like clashing, not, not clashing, crashing into each other, existential crises with climate, the econo economic crisis, the, the pandemic, and then this sort of like politics around the far right, you know, emerging on the street. And it's, and like, the only thing that's going to really hold the day is one, we have a lot of people and two, that there's like a lot of people who have the sort of courage to take bold action. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always this kind of framework on the left where, you know, there's a risk. Absolutely. You know, if I report so and so, then I might lose my job or I might lose my career and all that's all true. And I always go back to like, you know, those scenes from Birmingham or the Edmund Pettus Bridge where people knew they were going to get the shit kicked out of them. They knew they were going to get beaten and they did it. And that's what we saw this summer. I mean, people went in the streets knowing what the police were going to do. I mean, it was on video. Everybody knew it. And they still did it. And federal and, you government know, had special squads snatching special, people off you know, the streets and places and I mean, like Portland. Like to hear, like I've never liked Obama, but to hear Obama and like Spanberger and Pelosi and you know Roy Teixeira go on about defund the police and snappy slogans, I really like raises my blood pressure, like doubles it because like those people weren't in the streets to fucking get Joe Biden elected. They were in the streets because they were being brutalized on a daily basis by cops. And it's kind of like that Marx quote, even when they weren't being brutalized, it was weighing heavy on them. I've recently in the last few weeks been reading a lot of like kind of psychological studies of, of race and class and all that kind of stuff. And there's a price to be paid. You let you live, you don't live as long and you have more health problems if you're poor or if you're African-American or if you're in some kind of group that's marginalized. It's never a way. You're never not thinking about like if you're black and you're out, you're thinking about the cops. If you're poor, you're thinking about like, can I pay my rent? Can I feed my kids? You know? And I think that these asshole liberals just don't have any concept. They think that, you know, it's like I'm a sports fan and I hate analytics because it just simply reduces everything to a number. And this is what these people do. You know, people in this district voted this way and defund the police. It's like, fucking, I don't care. I don't care if defund, and it didn't. Defund the police didn't cost the election. But the fact is, that's more important to them. Those three goddamn words, like Obama, defund the police is far more important than Derek Chauvin, you know? Get upset at Derek Chauvin, not defund the police. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I I think the uh, the other important lesson here is that is that um, what we need are people who are in these institutions, um, you know, who are willing to sort of like push back 
against this leadership, union leadership and, and nonprofit leadership. And, you know, there were however many wildcat strikes that happened this year. Those were all in defiance of, uh, and, and don't get me wrong, this predates wildcat, the wildcat strikes that we've been seeing have, have predated the pandemic. It's been happening the last couple of years, teacher well, strikes. The, the UC, yeah, the, yeah. the red state, too, the UC kids we had on, kids, yeah. students we had on, yeah. oh man. Uh, Amazon even was doing this before COVID. Yeah, th that was all in direct defiance of like yeah. union leadership. Uh, there's a wave of union organizing going on in like the, the nonprofit industrial complex right now, which is also like pushing back on a lot of policies of, of nonprofit management. It's like a kind of pretty important thing to kind of pay attention to. And so like, not only do we need bold leadership and moral courage in the streets, but we also need it in, you know, in your workplace. And so that's, that's another important lesson here is like, and whether you're a nonprofit office worker or whether you're working on a, a shop floor at some factory somewhere, really important thing to do is we need yeah. to defy that there's the professional opposition or the professional resistance and we need to be defying them. Yeah. Look at the, just do some study up on the Chicago teachers who have just had one, I gone back into the classroom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, uh, everywhere else, these unions are like, let's find a safe way to go back. Well, you know, if you're in a private school, you can have plexiglass, you can have PPE and all that kind of stuff. If you're in some like public school in Warren or Youngstown, Ohio, it's, it's bad, you know, to kind of move on the other sector that, you know, we want to like push on is, is this sort of like what I call this like socialist pundit class or a, a faux pundit class, which are like, to be honest, really comes out of New York and out of Brooklyn. And, you know, while I feel like their politics are probably more aligned with mine, speaking for myself, is that like, there's like a, a sort of like missed moment that has been happening. And it's mostly because they spend a lot of time basically just like self-promoting and self-promoting themselves and like communicating with each other. Uh, they, they spend way more time talking to themselves and like what we call like things like left Twitter than they are in like, well, that's how do we get more working class people involved in some of these movements? And, and to be honest, I also feel like there's also like, there, there's a lot of street organizers and activists and people who are like taking bold action. There's a whole body of people out in the world doing a lot of stuff. And that's who, in my opinion, these folks should be lifting up. That's who we lift up on this show. And so this sort of like faux pundit class that is sort of like emerged, you know, from like the Jacobin left, whatever you want to call it, is like, they're missing that, that, you know, the, one of the real lessons of the Trump world of the, of the Trump moment is the, is the thunder on the left, the people in the street. And while I, I'll say that the, the socialist left, it does like acknowledge them more than like the corporate media. There's a lot to be, there's still a lot remains to be done. Yeah. And, and it's really important thing. And this most recent like sort of dust up between members of this, like sort of like faux pundit class with Jimmy Dore, you know, criticizing AOC and getting into it with like a number of other sort of pro Bernie, pro AOC people. And not that Jimmy Dore is not pro Bernie either is the other weird thing, but like, it's like, it's like deeply problematic. Like this is not what we should be arguing about in this moment. Like these are the people who say we should push Biden to the left, but they're not doing anything to push Biden to the left, for example. Yeah. So. I don't, I mean, I, people send me videos and I'll see them and I'll, I'll watch, you know, Dora, Crystal Ball, the Young Turks. And it's just, it's kind of infuriating. I mean, I've talked to people who were actually, you know, kind of involved with the, in the origins of Jacobin who left because, you know, very explicitly they wanted a commitment to like, you know, um, movement politics, and they weren't going to get that. I mean, I've been bitching about this for, for, I mean, I have a personal issue. I, you know, be honest with you. I had a, the worst experience of my life with Vivek Chibber at Catalyst Magazine. I've been published in military journals and conservative journals, you know, all over, like internationally. Actually, I have never had an experience like I did with Chibber, who is the most unctuous, arrogant person. You know, if he's on the left, I, I don't want to be part of that. But you know, there's there's no sense of of what the movement is doing. They get in these pissy matches. The other issue, which I've had since 2015, is like this kind of they're all in on Sanders. You know, they they're the house organ for Bernie Sanders. And that's not what left media should be doing. Left media should not be running a presidential campaign, a campaign of a guy who had no chance of winning. Never, ever was Bernie Sanders going to be a Democratic nominee. I, you know, I I'm not a dumb guy. I'm not brilliant, but I knew that he was never going to be the nominee. AOC, you know, I think it's cool. She says a lot of stuff. I like what she says about but uh, Pelosi, but she's one of what, six or seven people out of 535. She can't even get a committee assignment. That vote wasn't even close, 
right? And so this idea that you're going to somehow slow, I mean, we're all going to be long dead before the squad doubles, you know? It's like Shahid Buttar said, the Bay Area, the home of liberal elitism, right? You guys don't have any, I mean, your, your representatives there are basically corporate Democrats, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, that lefty, there. it's a self-importance. It's this commitment to like, you know, we're in the New York Times, we're in the Guardian, uh, we we know Bernie Sanders, we can do interviews with Lula, all that's great, right? But, you know, the other day I made a list of the, the 58 shows we've done. I think we've had 30 activists on and like, damn, that was badass stuff. You know, people who were doing mutual aid in New Orleans, people from Portland, Deb Russell talking about the Austin street actions and Scott Crow, Lisa Fithy and Jay Conroy, Stoughton Lind, you know, and, and that's really, you know, what had been, I've said this many times, what did Baldwin say? Beneath the pavement, that's where the truth lies. You know, yep. Yep. ain't on Twitter, ain't on Instagram. And and to be honest, folks, that's, well, you know, that's our 2021 program. That's what we're going to, that and the radical history we talk about. And, but we really want to be like uplifting street organizing people who are like, not the kind of folks that are even going to get on the, those YouTube, you know, those yeah. giant YouTube shows. Like they basically have people from that liberal elite class come on and talk about radical politics with them, but yeah. whatever. They're not talking to people who are like yeah. in the back country fighting pipelines or yeah. doing union organizing on their campus or what have you. And if anything, if our show ever takes off, which, you know, we, we work really hard to do that. That's what we'll be pushing those shows to do yeah. more of. Yeah, I mean, I wish we could get Adolf Reed on or Gnome. You know, Gnome is busy. I've checked in with him, you know, and, uh, you know, I've sent emails to a lot of these people and they don't respond because, you know, if you could be on Jimmy Dore and get like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or, you know, whatever, you know, we're nobody. And, and so, you know, we would have those folks on if, if you know, if they want to come to us, just just send send us an email, yeah. Twitter, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll be glad to talk to you, you know, but... Yeah. And we do, and we do have a, we ha, we have had like a, a few like kind of like known left names on our show, and, and oh, Dave Zirin and David Barsamian, absolutely, you know, yeah, we've Lisa done Fithian, like, yeah, yeah, Lisa Scott Crow, and I mean the shows we did and we continue to do with Sarah Costa have been great. Like we've been, you know, I think you know talking about COVID in ways that you're certainly not going to hear in, in, in most places. Uh, you're much more aware of the podcast world than I am, but I don't really hear kinds of nuts and bolts stuff like that unless it's actually like a medical podcast you know so yeah. um, but you know sarah who is uh, our official uh, medical correspondent uh what, what's our staff we have an executive producer we have a medical correspondent uh so. we have an editor we have an editor yeah so we're, we're getting there <laughs> he holds it together for us in many oh, ways. we have uh, we have a musical director moody you know? yeah dr john diallo <clears throat> and then but, the uh, last go ahead oh go ahead no i, I just want to like to to kind of that level of moral courage, I think, has been inspiring. And I think, you know, like when we get depressed and it's really easy to do, think about those, you know, and, and like when we talked to the Portland people, J&K, I think was there what we called them, um, you know, they were saying that there are like 15, 16 year old kids who are in the streets every night, you know, and they knew what was going to happen and they did it. And and so when you know, you know, it's like I keep going, but Scott Crow, when he talked about the emergency heart was so powerful and so touching, like you just have to do it. You know, and and so it's easy to say, well, you know, this can go wrong or that can go wrong. And, you know, it's true. We live in a day where you can get doxxed, you know, absolutely. Uh, and, and sometimes for really stupid reasons. But, um, you know, sometimes when when you have this kind of Derek Chauvin psychology running rampant, I mean, we do have this kind of sociopathic, psychopathic, whatever force in America now, you know, that's that's you can't institutionalized. Deny. It's institution, And you can't. Deny, I mean, like. You know, and in, in you have these national protests against police brutality and they doubled down and they became like twice as brutal and they knew they were being videotaped, you know, and on the other hand, think of it this way, though, like how many people got fired? How many cops were actually like charged? You know, that never happened before. How many There's... people, how many like Karens, you know, lost their jobs because they videotaped, you know, a black guy doing a barbecue or, or looking for birds in Central Park? Yeah, and more importantly, like the defund the police, we're also starting to see that happen at like at in cities, like the city of Austin, Austin cut the, yeah. and and I believe Minneapolis has done it as well. And then uh, we've all, we're also starting to see people organize against police unions too, which is like yeah. a, which yeah. is like a 
a sort of unnamed, well, except till this year, an unnamed factor in like how police yeah. get literally get away with like murder. Imagine if Obama had said something in support of that. Yeah. And, you know, instead of retreating back into his, you know, kind of corporate whoredom, you know. Yeah, appealing to suburban moms. The last sector that we wanted to sort of like kind of hit on missing the 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 last sector of the left that misses the real lesson of the of the Trump moment is is the sort of like kind of conspiratorial um, <laughs> the conspiratorial element. Bob kind of talked about it at the beginning of the show, but like just want to like kind of touch on that, which is like you know we were a voice of reason and we were a voice of calm. We like disagreed with the sort of with a lot of what was happening or excuse me, not with what was happening, but with what was being said. And like, don't get us wrong. We saw that Trump was like doing everything he could to overturn the election results. And he had lost by 7 million votes. And, you know, is definitely like has like a huge percentage of his base, which agrees that it's like a fraudulent election. But like, also like the sort of like keeping calm and keeping things sort of like keeping it in the lane and not veering off until like, just like kind of freaking out is like, also we were like, not about that. Um, and as a, as a person who's done a lot of organizing, I've been an organizer for 20 years, a street organizer for 20 years. I've been part of like countless direct actions in the world. It's like the also important thing to do in that moment was to organize. That's what actually I was doing when I was not on this show was like, you know, making it a lot easier for people to move into the streets in a pandemic when they're afraid of the police, when they're afraid of fascists. And so I, I think that's also like a really important lesson is like, instead of just getting like people getting worked up by like what to me actually even seemed like clickbait on the internet, like not getting like worked up about that, but instead like acting on it. And I did a lot of actions in the weeks before the election and, and the weeks after. And I just want to say that that reduced, a lot, that calmed me in, in many ways. It was a very important uh, thing, not just for like the world, but also for my own well-being. I love the phrase blue and on it's, it's, they're not like Q and on, but no, I think, I mean, the whole issue was, you know, cause in, immediately in 2016, Trump is a fascist. And then the, all year Trump's going to have a coup. Trump's not going to leave office. And, you know, I tried the, the voice of reason, right? Me, but, but my point was, you've always, you know, you've always really been the voice of reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, I think I have, but my point was that's that's actually I'm not, not ki- true. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Well, no, I, I I think in my my private life not so much, but in person, yeah, in public, I mean, yeah, that's how we met, right? We were doing street stuff with the Global Awareness Collective, which was like awesome. It's one of the best memories of my life. But first off, like you know, it, it's just not correct. But secondly, like it freaks people out. It creates this immense. I mean, I knew people who were like not sleeping because Trump was going to have a coup. And Trump is a fascist. And, and so, but but the bigger point there was, and I said this in 2017, it's like, so what are you going to do about it? Trump's a fascist. He's the gravest threat ever. We're Nazi Germany in the making. So what do you do? Oh, vote in 2020. Like, you know, there's going to be a coup. What do you do? Well, then fucking go out and do something about it. You know, don't cancel all your street protests on November 4th. But the bigger thing, and, and, and I said this at the beginning, is like, to me, the fa- it's like the 911 conspiracy theories, right? It's an inside job. It's like, First of all, there's no evidence. That's the other thing about, like, the other day I got into it with somebody who's like, the, you know, uh, uh, COVID was made in a, a, a lab in Wuhan, right? Like, there's no evidence. You know, is it possible? Sure. Is it possible not one's an inside shot? Sure. But there's no evidence. That's that's the thing, you know? It's like the Kennedy conspiracy, the assassination. It's like, people have been studying that for 50 years, and there's still no definitive evidence that that anything happened there, right? 60, 60 years. 60 years, or, yeah. Or right, 27 God. years, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but the bigger to me, the far more radical analysis of this is that that's how capitalism works. You know, American imperialism created so much hatred that people actually like hijacked planes and and, and blew up buildings. You know, that to me is far more terrifying, right, than than these conspiracy theories that that Trump is just a natural you know, a, a, a consequence of of this kind of neoliberal capitalism that we've been seeing for 50 years. You know, when we were doing like, I was doing some lectures, I did lectures online this semester, and I think we played the Goldwater video, didn't we, on that show, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I saw that, it was like, well, this is Trump. Look at Nixon in 68. There's, there's you know, Reagan. I mean, Trump is, you know, he has Twitter, which I think, you know, social media has really contributed to this a lot. But uh, Trump is a, horrific but you know this idea that you know like that's why i hated like the lincoln project right we're going to bring the republican party back to its roots it's like 
Trump is you. You guys are Trump. He's not, he's not, he can't go to the country club. You know, he's, he's a tacky capitalist, but that's who they are. And I think these conspiracists and, and these alarmists and these people who are hysterical and unhinged and my pillow you know, guy, my pillow guy, Paul, on the left, though, you have Paul Street and people like Louis Proyette, who, you know, everybody you disagrees with is a scumbag. If you don't agree with him on Syria or whatever, or, you know, Sam Hussein, he's always got a tinfoil hat conspiracy. These people, you know, they have a, a they have a platform. They're writing for left publications where a lot of people read that. And, and I think it feeds into that. They want to hear it. It is clickbait. They don't want to hear two people like you and me saying, you know, it's it's going to be okay, but we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And that's why, you know, like, organ- I, I remember Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, you know, I've heard him speak two or three times. And he would always, you know, have this line, which he would repeat during his talks. And he would say, organize, organize, organize. And at the end of the day, you know, if you ever talk like Staunton Land or talk to somebody from the old days of labor. I mean, I've talked to people who were involved in a little steel strike in Youngstown and, you know, it's organize, 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 get together, plan it out, figure out what you're going to do. Remember you're all in this together. Yep. Uh, you know, our, our, something similar, our homie Scott Crow actually has says and has written, I think it's a signature on his email, which is like, know your history, organize your people and fight to win. Yeah. And I think in many ways, Scott is a street philosopher. And, oh yeah, and I think it's a I think it's an important thing to remember. Fight to um, win. Fight to win. Yeah, moral being morally superior is not enough. No, no, we know that. So no, and and not you know speaking to each other on left Twitter. Yeah. Um, but listen but, to the Green Red podcast. Yeah, and yeah, and tweet us, retweet us. Um, That's your guilty pleasure. Yeah, uh, you know the kind of last thing we want to talk about, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, is like just the which we've touched on a little bit. I think it's actually the ongoing theme of this episode, and it's the ongoing theme of our show, which is like organizing is really what's going to like sort of like shift the paradigm. It's 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 what has shifted the paradigm thus far, uh, and and part of that is going to be bold courage. Part of that is going to be you know that the youth, which are stepping into the streets, it's gonna be the the wall of moms. People have never done things like that, stepping into the streets, putting themselves in between the rubber bullets and the tear gas and the and the sort of like masses of people. Uh, there's a whole lot of other pieces we could say about these people um, who are <laughs> taking bold action and leading with a lot of moral courage, but it's like the important thing. Uh, I, I really can't emphasize that enough. Um, I'll say that right now, as we're speaking, they're building a pipeline in Northern Minnesota. It's called Line 3. It's being built by a company called Enbridge. They, uh, after the election, the Democratic governor quickly and as low and, and the most low profile way possible signed the permits. We've not let that happen. But there's a there's a huge fight going on against Line 3. And it's it's indigenous led. It's led by mostly indigenous women. But you know, there's a lot of people stepping into into the fray right now, and the, you know, Minnesota has been ravaged by the pandemic. It's also you know December in Minnesota, but people are like chaining themselves to construction equipment. There was an action yesterday where someone like blocked a facility where all the the trucks and and drilling equipment's kept. And so I just I just want to say that this moral courage is is really the important thing in this moment and like i said there's these like crashing into each other sort of crises and there's organizing going on on every one of these fronts and it's like just you know it's critically important and our show we're going to talk we're going to share some people's history with y'all and then we're going to be talking to some organizers and activists and that's going to be like a really important thing we're going to also probably talk be talking to some notable notables some journalists some maybe some other podcast hosts but we're going to kind of keep doing what we're doing and so I want to say that that's been the theme of 2020 is organizing, but it's going to be even more the theme of 2021 and not just on green and red, but like everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and this isn't a guilt trip saying, you know, you're not doing enough, you know, we do what we can do and it's, it's tough times, but you know, there's no sin in like, you know, writing a check if you have to do that, you know, yeah. or, or sending uh sending a dozen pizzas to a bunch of guys, uh, you know, uh, pocket a road. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's, you know, do what you can. But let people know about this too. And I wanted to read a quote too, which I kind of came up with while we were going. But there's a there's a um, noted environmental writer named Barry Lopez who just passed away, and he wrote uh, a book called Art of Dreams, and he wrote a book uh, called Of Wolves and Men, and he's like 
won the National Book Award, but he was like a, a sort of he's a sort of important figure and like commentator. Um, and he there's a quote that I wanted to share that I read by him the other day when I was reading some of his obituary stuff, which is everything is held together with stories. That is all that is holding us together: stories and compassion. And I and I think that's like a sort of good way to end the. For, at least for me to sort of end the year, the first year of the Green and Red podcast is just like, you know, we've brought together a lot of stories and we brought it with a lot of compassion. I think that's like a, a really sort of important thing to like close on. Yesterday was the anniversary of uh, Che arriving in Santa Clara, which, uh, you know, would lead three days later to the triumph of the Cuban revolution. And, you know, what Che always said, the, the true level, let me say the risk of sounding ridiculous, uh, that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love and you got to care about each other. You have to, you know, look out there and see what's happening and, and really care about uh, people who, you know, are really being crushed right now. So do what you can. It's been, uh, it's been a great year and uh, not a great year for us. It's been, it's been a eye opening and, and um, you know, we hope you all have a happy new year and be safe. And we will uh, certainly be talking to you again. And uh, thank you for, all you've done uh, to make this uh, better for us. And uh, we're gonna go off with my favorite video of 2020. And and just as a last reminder, greenredpodcast.org, you can donate to us on our support link or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Everyone, come this way.